The title of my message this morning is Christ's Warning to the Church. Christ's Warning to the Church. And our primary text is going to be out of the Gospel of Luke, Luke 6, 43 through 49. Well, in this day and age, it seems like we're surrounded by warnings. Every place we look, everything we touch, it seems there's a warning label attached to it. There's warning signs on the businesses we frequent. There's warning signs on the products we use. There's warning signs on the things we purchase. Um, And at some point, you know, we, we see many signs, many labels that are just plainly ridiculous. It's gotten to that point where um, people are making memes of these warning labels, and and they're a joking matter. And as far as ridiculous warning labels, the one that always comes to my mind is back a long, long time ago when I was a young patrol officer, a young police officer. I was issued all my equipment after I went to the academy, and I was out on patrol, and they issued me a can, a spray can of this stuff. This was. This was a long time, it was before pepper spray, and this stuff was called chemical mace. And I pulled out this mace canister one day, and I read the warning label on it, and it said, caution, intoxicated, drugged, enraged, or psychotic persons may react with violence if not incapacitated by this device. And I thought, well, who else would I use this on? Would I use it on a, on a calm, sober, peaceful person? No, I certainly would not. But the person I would use it on is probably going to get really, really angry when I use it on them. And I found out this was true because it didn't work on bad guys at all. It worked really good on good guys. Anybody, any officer that took out his chemical mace, all of us learned to run because it would take us out of the game. We would no longer be able to function and the bad guy would be enraged. So that was a ridiculous warning label, but it actually told me something that I needed to know. And you probably have encountered parents that are of the type that are constantly worried about our children. And yes, we should be worried about our children. There's a lot of dangers in this world. And the news media reminds us of these dangers in case we forget about it. They're not going to let us forget about these dangers. And these parents, who are sometimes called helicopter parents or something similar, are constantly warning their children, usually yelling at them, be careful, be careful, be careful, don't do this, don't do that. And what usually happens with these children is that we see them tune out the parent, don't we? They're no longer listening to the parent's very real loving concern for them because they're overwhelmed by these warnings. They no longer are important to the child. So these ridiculous labels, these labels every place, they, they, they cause us to not pay attention to warnings, to the valid warning signs. Now, how do we know which is a valid warning sign and which is not? Which is just a a warning created by, in our culture, by by a legal team that's trying to protect the manufacturer from a lawsuit and could present in court, well, we warned them that the egg beater should only be used externally to the body. 
So it's not our fault that they, they hurt themselves. These are the things, these are the points that we should consider when it comes to warning signs to determine if they're valid or not. Number one, we need to consider who is it that is warning us. Number two, who is the warning intended for? And number three, what is the seriousness of the warning? We must prioritize, mustn't we? We have busy lives. We have a lot of things going on. And we, we have to make a judgment call. We have to rank the order of importance in this warning. And so the first point really helps with the third point. Who is the warning coming from? Now, in our text this morning that we're going to examine, Luke 6, 43 through 49, Jesus Christ issues a warning. And this part of of Luke's gospel is the final part of what's often called Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, a plain like a geographical flat place. And it parallels Matthew's gospel in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Now, there's arguments among theologians whether these are two separate sermons or whether they're the same sermon just given from a little bit different perspective. I personally hold the latter view, but there's no problem with the, with the former view. I mean, whatever, whatever words our Lord utters, whether he does it in a repetitious sermon, so to speak, or it's the same sermon told twice, uh, uh, is really not that important. Um, but what's, what we find important here with these two versions is, as, as many of you know, uh, Matthew and Luke are part of the three synoptic gospels, right? The, the three gospels of synoptic means one view. Um, so they have a very similar view, but we're seeing them from two different perspectives. It's like if you ever look through a telescope and you can, in the, your object you're looking at is magnified, and then you switch to binoculars, and now you have a stereoscopic view of what you're looking at, right? You can, you can see it better, you can judge things better when we're using a, the stereoscopic view, if you will. And obviously, you know, that's why God gave us two eyes, so we would have this stereoscopic um, view. So each of these Gospels, that we're, we're going to look at, at the parallel uh, accounts here, both in, in Luke and Matthew, um, were written at a different time to address different needs in the church. Of course, you know, this is all God's inspired word, right? So God inspires the authors to write for a specific purpose. And there, there's a reason, there's intent behind this. And it's important, I think, to, to realize that these New Testament writers of these Gospels, as well as the rest of the New Testament, that their focus, their primary audience, who they intended to hear and read their writings was the church. They were not writing evangelistic messages to the world, to the unchurched. So we need to read it in that context, that it's coming to us, the church, throughout the ages. Many Christians, unfortunately, think that the, that the Bible by itself can just function as an evangelistic tool, that rather than taking the risk of witnessing to someone themselves or explaining the gospel to this person, that they can just say, um, here's a Bible, read the gospel of John. I know this from experience. As, as a young on-fire Christian, I tried that. 
And I was astounded at the misinterpretation of my unchurched, unchristian friends when they read John's gospel. Of course, I, I picked the, the deepest theological gospel for them to read, right? Because I loved it. And I didn't realize how deep and theological it was until we met and started talking about it. And I'm like, ah, I think I need to back way up before these guys are going to get what this is about. So, so we need to keep that in, in mind, that this is a message that's given particularly to, to us. It's not given just to the world at large. So that changes the, the idea and the scope of the warning, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's very individualistic. It's not a universal warning label that we find on a pill bottle or something. It's like getting a phone call and saying, Ken, you've got to watch out for this. And if it's coming from the right person, I'm going to pay more attention to that than a label that I and everyone else find on our products. So these two gospel accounts that we're going to consider, there is a difference between them. And just real shortly, I want to consider that, that, that difference so we know where the point of view is coming from. So let's start with Matthew first, the first gospel, right? So Matthew, he's an eyewitness from the beginning of Jesus's ministry. He's, as you know, he's one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. He was there the whole time. And he's, he's Jewish. He's Jewish to the core, although he was a tax collector. He was working for the Romans when Jesus called him. And in the Gospels he's of, uh, of uh, Mark and Luke, he's called by his Jewish name, uh, Levi. And it was very common for Jews of this era in that place to have a Gentile name and a Jewish name. So Matthew, and here's a diff real difference between um, these two um, Gospels, is Matthew does not explicitly tell us why he is writing his gospel. But implicitly, by, by when we read it, we can deduce why he has, has written this, and his, he has a purpose. He has a theological purpose, as does every biblical writer under divine inspiration. And this purpose is to demonstrate to a Jewish, a thoroughly Jewish audience, that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. How do we deduce this? Well, Matthew makes extensive use of Hebrew scriptures, and he makes extensive references to Jewish law, things that would not be important to Gentile believers, that would, that would really, though, strike to the heart of a Jewish believer. So Matthew's gospel, I would suggest, as do many commentators, is reassurance to these early Jewish believers who were experiencing local persecution. Now, persecution in the church did not originally arise from the government, from the Romans. The Romans initially were fine with this odd sect that, that arose out of um, Judea. The persecution came from their family members, from their neighbors, from those in the synagogue that saw them as turning away, accused them of turning away from the Jewish faith. They viewed them as apostates who abandoned their faith. So Matthew is reassuring his, his, his hearers, his readers, no, you are not abandoning your faith, that the, your faith is being fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Christ. Now, Luke is, is different. 
He's not an eyewitness, right? He's probably, we think, a Gentile Christian. In other words, he was a God-fearer, what the Jews called a God-fearer, prior to conversion to Christianity, that he was, he was um, a friend to the Jewish religion, but he had not become a proselyte. He had not undergone circumcision. Um, and of course, you know, these things, we, 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 we draw them out from the writings that we find and what the, what the later church fathers write about this, because you notice when you read your Bible that the authors are not at all concerned about talking about themselves. They give no bio of themselves. Sometimes they don't even identify themselves because what do they want to do? They want to point you to the Lord. They want to point you to the triune God of the Bible. They consider themselves just the messenger, and the messenger is not important in this case. So Luke's writing is, is, is excellent Hellenistic Greek. Um, his writing reveals he was not a native speaker of Aramaic, the common language of Judea. So we know he's probably not from this area. He's probably not uh, of Jewish origin by birth. But interestingly, and if you've read his gospel, and if you've read his companion volume too, the, the Acts of the Apostles, you know that he gives a reason, his intent for writing. He addresses his gospel to this unknown person named Theophilus, which in Greek is friend of God. And he writes to Theophilus that this is, the gospel, an orderly account so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So he's affirming what Theophilus has been taught, that he, that he will know that this is true because Luke is presenting a history of what occurred. And this continues in to Acts, uh, his second volume. Um, so from this, uh, this address to Theophilus, we deduce that his intended audience is, is probably mostly Gentile. Um, so this gives us an idea of the two different views that we're going to see in, in these accounts we're looking at. And this part of Luke that we're, we're going to be looking at today um, takes place, and it's chapter in Luke, it's chapters 4 through 9, it takes place during what's called Jesus' Galilean ministry. And this Galilean ministry is very important, super important. This is the training ground for the disciples, those men that Jesus is training to send out into the world to spread the gospel message and turn the world upside down, as Acts says. And Galilee is the starting ground for Jesus' great exodus, the rescue of his people being held in bondage by Satan. So now the Sermon on the Plain, what we're going to look at, this is the subject of this is the conduct expected by the disciples. And most of Luke's account is found in Matthew. There's an eschatological dimension to this, that there's a concern about end things, and by that I mean death, our human death, judgment, and the, her- and the hereafter. And it's probably early in Jesus' ministry. As I said, it's in the region of Galilee, known as Galilee of the Gentiles at this time. 
So in Luke, we, we're told that, that Jesus, after descending from the mountain to a level place or plateau between the mountains, began his teaching to a great crowd of his disciples. Remember, initially in his, in his ministry, there were many, many disciples. It wasn't until his very hard teaching we read about in John 6 that the disciples were reduced to just the small inner band, at least for a time. Matthew, on the other hand, he emphasizes the mountaintop that Jesus was on. Why? Because Matthew is focusing on mountains as being important. Think about how mountains are part of the Old Testament, how they, how they, how they factor into that. So Matthew's making connection with this mountaintop top with Moses going up to the mountain and meeting with God and receiving God's word from him, the connections being made in the Jewish mind. So with that introduction, let's look, let's actually read what Luke has to say in chapter 6, verses 43 and 45, where Jesus is giving his warning. He's talking about a tree and its fruit. And Luke writes, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Now this, this idea of bad fruit that Luke's talking about, it's, like it's, it's important to grasp here when he, when, what, he, what he means when he says bad fruit. He's not talking about fruit that was once good and has turned bad, that has gone ripe, like that banana we've had in the bowl in the kitchen for just a little bit too long, and now it's turned black and mushy, and there's no way we can eat it. No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about a, a poisonous fruit that was not good ever at any point. And that's important in, in, the, in the message that, that we're going to draw out of this. Now, if you want to, turn to Matthew's parallel account. And we'll look at the differences. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, and see the different view that Matthew gives. And why, and think about why would he give this slightly different view. So Matthew writes, beware of false prophets. Okay, false prophets, that makes sense to a Jew, doesn't it? A Jew is familiar with prophets, where the Gentile reader in Luke, not so much. It wouldn't mean that much to him, but it's very, very meaningful to the Jewish audience. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Ravenous wolves. What does a ravenous wolf do but tear apart the sheep, right? Scatters the sheep from the shepherd, from the good shepherd. Matthew says you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So our Lord is telling us there's something very important here that he wants us to watch, that he wants us to look at, that he wants us to know. 
this discernment that we need to have. Notice what he's drawing out in his, in his teaching. As I mentioned, the false prophets, they are disguised as one of us. Their intentions, though, are evil. They're bad. They're to rip us apart. They're recognizable by their fruit, which is bad fruit. And their destination is the fire of God's judgment. So in understanding the message, let's apply the three-step criteria for recognizing valid warnings. First off, as you recall, the first point, who is warning us? The identity of the one speaking establishes the standard. Earlier in Luke, in chapter 6, Jesus defines who is the good person that this excerpt we just read refers to. It refers to a good person. Remember in the gospel where that rich young ruler asks Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers him, who is good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus narrows the category of good to one being. That's the triune God. It becomes a very, very limited, exclusive category. In his answer, Jesus does not intend the message to be interpreted that he is not good. Rather, what he is asking his inquirer is, do you know who you are speaking to? Do you understand who I am when you call me good teacher? Only God is good. Did the rich young ruler get that message? We don't know. We don't know if later it kind of dawned on him, if he connected the dots, like, oh my goodness, now I know exactly what the good teacher meant. And we can only be good through Christ. So the good fruit that Jesus talks about can only be those who are his true followers. We are not good apart from him. And our second point, remember, is who is the warning intended for? So the identity of those receiving the message is important. And remember at the beginning of the excerpt we read, Jesus addresses his sermon to his disciples. There's a large crowd, large crowd there, but he's addressing a large group of his disciples. And this fruit metaphor, you know, it should ring a bell with us. It's been adopted by our culture, so like so many things that have been lifted out of Scripture when we apply it elsewhere. You hear people who are called a bad apple. You know, you hear about um, if, you, if, you, if you like uh, uh, police dramas or murder mysteries or court dramas, you've, you've heard the term fruit of the poisonous tree. You know, evidence that's taken illegally taints everything along the way, and it's all biblical. It's flowing from this stuff. So <clears throat> we don't want to miss who's in view here, who, who's being uh, addressed. It's the church, right? It's not a worldly good, quote-unquote, person who thinks that their works and how they treat other people on a daily basis, that that's what makes them good. We know God's word tells us that's not true. And there's this is a warning about pretenders in the church who will preach lies, who will steer God's people away from the plain truth of the scripture. 
in favor of how the world would prefer the church to be. How does the world want us? The world wants us to be non-threatening to them and to their message, to the cultural message that they're trying to drive home. We're seeing it today, especially during June. You all know what June is, right? In the, in the world, it's a special celebration of sexual perversity that we're, we're supposed to focus on. The world wants us to be compliant with what they demand we do, whatever that may be. The church wants, excuse me, the world wants the church to be easily ignored, something that is irrelevant to everyday life, to the process of our government, to how we function as a society. In other words, the world does not want us to be what theologians call the church militant. That is who we are identified as, the militant body of Christ on earth. Why are we militant? Not because we're taking up arms, we're taking up spiritual arms. We march against the minions of Satan and his human disciples that want to drive the gospel message and God out of every aspect of people's lives. The third criteria, remember, is the seriousness of the warning. So we have two trees in this example that Jesus uses, right? The good tree and the bad tree. Sound familiar? Two trees, two trees. It comes up, I think, in other places in Scripture. Genesis 2, 9. The tree of life in the middle of Eden's garden that we had full access to in heaven, according to Revelation 22, Matthew 12, 33, Jesus talks about the tiny mustard seed that grows into this plant that will be larger than any others in the garden. In Galatians, Paul in chapter 3, verse 13, he talks about the curse of the tree and how we are saved by the curse of the tree. God turns this upside down. The good tree is the cross of Christ. It's God the Father's way of providing salvation for rebellious humanity. Now the bad tree. Going back to Genesis chapter 2, we have the tree of knowledge of good and evil in in Eden's garden. Um, And it was eaten with the intention that man would sit on God's throne, that he would take God's God's place. Paul in Ephesians 5, 11, and 12 says, He tells us, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Expose them. It's not just turn a blind eye. It's not just be, well, live and let live, you know, and I don't want to upset anyone. And goodness gracious, we can't be confrontational, can we? Paul says expose them. But who is he talking to? He's talking to the church, right? He's not talking about the world outside Paul tells us, and the rest of the Bible tells us, you're going to find that stuff out. You're going to find rebellion out there. Be shocked if you do not find rebellion, because outside those doors, metaphorically speaking, but outside the church, there is rebellion. Inside the church, it's a different story. This is where we need to expose the bad fruit, the evil teaching. Not that we don't act against it in the world. We are to be godly examples. We are to fulfill our duties as good citizens of our nation in the political process to make sure that our nation follows God's moral precepts given in the Ten Commandments and given in the gospel, 
right? But Paul continues, he says, um, to expose these works of darkness, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. I think we're seeing this today. Obviously, Paul saw it in his day, but we see it today. We see it with pastors. We see it with churches that not only turn a blind eye to God's word, but they rip apart God's word like ravenous wolves, don't they? When they say evil is good, and how dare you speak against perversity? You know, how, who made you judge? Obviously, we're not judges, but we are given God's word, are we not? And we're told to carry out God's message of plan of salvation to the world. Jesus warns of the judgment of the bad trees in Luke 3, 9. And he says, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. So these bad trees in the church, they should take heed. Now, on one hand, when I'm giving this message, I realize we are blessed to have the church we have, to have the assembly we have. We have We have a solid record in history of good Bible preaching. We do not have heresy that's taught here or has ever been taught here as far as I know. But when we talk about the church, I'm using the capital C, the church universal, not speaking of us. And we must understand that it's not the same in every other assembly that calls itself a Christian church. And if we visited elsewhere or we come from a different background, we know that to be true. We've experienced it. But Jesus goes on to say about the judgment of the bad tree, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What is the fire? Obviously, it's the fire of judgment. It's God's fire. It's God's wrath. So it's not an idea of a tree being barren, that you could, you, you're producing good fruit, all, all well and good, you know, a faithful servant. Or you have a tree that just isn't producing fruit at all, and then you've got the tree producing the poisonous. There's not three trees. You cannot be a tree not producing fruit. You're going to produce fruit. It's either going to be poison, or it's going to be the fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One or the other, there's no in-between, there's no compromise there. And this one good tree, it bears repeating, is Jesus Christ. There's many types of bad trees. I could not stand here and give you an example of every type of bad tree. Tolstoy, in his great novel, Anna Karenina, at the beginning, his opening verse, he talks about his opening His opening line is, in unhappy families, there are many types of unhappiness. And in happy families, there's only one type of happiness. And it's the same, it's the same we're experiencing here. There's only one truth from God. There are many lies. There there is so many types of bad fruit. We need to be aware of that. But if you know the good fruit, then you can distinguish the bad fruit. So the disciples, what would they have thought when they heard this? They would have pictured an orchid with tree, an orchard rather, with many trees in it. That would have been in their mind. In this huge orchard of the world, how do you know the good tree from the countless bad trees? Jesus has told us, right? It's by the fruit these trees produce. 
This requires judgment and discernment. So this idea of thou shalt not judge, well, we need to judge with righteous judgment, judgment that God gives us. And what is that? It's the standard of Scripture. That's what we judge by, not the standard of the world, not the standard of our nation, but by God's judgment. When we do this, we must understand what our primary role is in life. This applies to you if you are a Christian. If you are a disciple of Christ, that is your primary role. Let me give you an example of how it's easy to miss the primary role. When I was on the SWAT team, I was a senior team leader sergeant. We had an operation one day where a federal task force had asked us to serve multiple warrants on this outlaw biker gang. Um, They had multiple houses that these bad guys lived in, and we needed to serve these warrants all at the same time. That way they couldn't warn one, one bad guy, couldn't warn another group of bad guys who'd be ready for the officers coming in the door. Had to happen exactly at the same time. So we only had so many officers on the SWAT team. We planned the mission. We spread our officers out as far as we could get them. We needed more personnel. We'd have an entry team, those, those officers who would be assigned to go in, breach the location, open the doors, get inside and, and, and subdue everybody, take them into custody and neutralize any threats. Then we had other SWAT officers whose assignment was to surround the building. It was what we called an inner containment. That way if a bad guy went out a window, there's a SWAT officer ready to grab him. Then we had what we called the outer perimeter. That was a a, a large area surrounding the location in case a bad guy got out the window and got past the inner containment, then the outer containment would grab him. So, not enough SWAT officers. We asked the Federal Task Force, can your agents, and their, their, their federal agents and their police officers, some of our detectives from our department were part of this task force, that's how we got called to help, can you, can you guys help us? Can, can they help us with the outer perimeter? Sure, no problem, Sarge. We'll, t- we'll take care of that. We'll help you. Okay, so I assign um, my officers to their duties and tell them you're going to have uh, a member of the task force that's going to be assisting you if you're on the outer perimeter. And, you know, Fred, you're going to have one. And Joe, you're going to have one. And um, see the senior special agent for th- the assignment of those agents. So we get to the location. We're at our planning spot and one of these officers who's going to handle the outer perimeter with an agent comes up to me and he says, Fred, Fred was from Tennessee. So Fred comes up to me and says, Sarge, you ain't going to believe this. He says, this federal agent, now I'm not making fun of this federal agent, there's a point to this, but it's humorous. So um, I, I had to laugh at the time. Uh, he says, this federal agent, he, 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 left his, he left his firearm back at the office in L.A. that's locked in his drawer. He was, he was a forensic accountant. All he did was track the money of these bad guys. Very, very important. He was responsible for putting a lot of really violent bad guys in prison for a long time. Because if you mess around monetarily, boy, the federal courts take that very, very, very seriously oftentimes much more seriously than if you commit a violent crime. So this man is vital. He's very important. But he forgot his primary duty was as a law enforcement officer. He was thinking like an accountant. And he shows up there unequipped to do a law enforcement 
officer's job. And we had to loan him a gun and keep him as far away from the action as possible. Because Fred said afterwards, I said, Fred, how did that agent do? Is everything okay? He says, you're not going to believe the sergeant. I gave him my backup gun, which is a little snub-nosed 38. You know, the bullets are in this cylinder. And he says, I hear this feller behind me. And I hear the bullets rattling in that chamber. And I'm thinking, I hope he don't shoot me. He's right behind me. <laughs> anyway, the point of that story is that we cannot forget, no matter what else we do in our life, our primary duty is as disciples of Christ, above all else. And if we get focused on other things, like our role as a parent or a grandparent, or our job, and we neglect our primary duty, then we're making a big mistake. We, We need to remember that. So, Bad trees with bad fruit. This parallel that we find in Matthew's Gospel 7.15 informs us that those in sight in this metaphor of the, of the bad trees with bad fruit are false teachers who Jesus describes as ravenous wolves ready to devour the faithful people of God. And John, in his, in his letter, his first epistle, John 1 or 1 John, excuse me, chapter 2, 19 and 26, he warns of these false teachers. They're not outsiders, right? They're not people coming from the outside trying to attack the church. It's not like some, in a modern-day correlation, it's not like some um, a person on TV or an opinion piece writer who's not a Christian at- attacking the church. No, it's insiders in the church who are in view here. And John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that that they all are not of us. Now, he's not just talking about they departed from the faith, that they apostatized and went their way. No, he's talking about something much more dangerous to the assembly. He says, but you have been appointed, excuse me, anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Now, this was the crux of the issue at this point in time in the church. But don't make a mistake to think that that is the only warning that is contained in this. That was the, the, the issue that we're thinking of that John has in mind, we were thinking that this is probably the, uh, the incipient um, beginnings of the, of the Gnostic um, movement that we're seeing, the, 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 the denial of the divinity of Christ, but it applies to any who would deny God's word. So standing against false teachers is not, nor has it ever been easy Paul and, his, Paul and the apostles of Christ were opposed through most of their ministries by false teachers. And much of the New Testament epistles are concerned w- with this. They provide apostolic correction and rebukes to false teaching. It was a major issue in the early church as it continues to be a major issue today and has been through the history of the church The great ecumenical or universal councils, they met to resolve teaching that was contrary 
to Christ and the apostles' teaching. They didn't meet to decide, as, as many will say, in the, the example of the Council of Nicaea, that they decided what books were in the Bible and what were not. No, they were dealing with heresy, with dangerous heresy in all of these meetings. Now, most of us have heard of that great preacher, the Prince of Peacher, Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the preacher of the London Metropolitan Tabernacle. He suffered an early death. He was much younger than me, much younger than many of you. His wife attributes his early death to the stress brought on by his fight against false teaching in the church, what was known at the time uh, as the downgrade controversy. Christian ministers at this time, the late 19th century, were beginning to deny the truth of Scripture. Spurgeon and other faithful men of God were fighting against this. This is something that Spurgeon wrote about that time. And it applies to us today. It made me think of some certain things. And Spurgeon writes, Why is it that some Christians, although they hear many sermons, make but slow advances in divine life? Because they neglect their closets, prayer closets, and they do not thoughtfully meditate on God's word. Do you have time to do that in your life? They love the wheat, but they do not grind it. They would have the corn, but they will not go forth into the fields to gather it. The fruit hangs upon the tree, but they will not pluck it. The water flows at their feet, but they will not stoop to drink it. From such folly deliver us, O Lord. Writes Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And I read this, and I thought of the many people that I have met in churches who say, to me and to others, I've stopped going to church because I'm not being fed. I'm not being fed there. I challenge you that this really is an excuse for their disobedience. It's an excuse for their love of the world and its ways rather than loving God and his people. It's one thing if you leave a church where the gospel is not being properly presented and you seek out a church that has good Bible preaching and teaching. That's one thing. But this excuse that I'm just not being fed, so I'm going out into the world uh, on, I'm spending my Sabbaths, my Sundays, you know, communing with nature. I'm just going to be in the forest and that's where I'll find God. Or maybe on the golf course because that's a beautiful place. It's just an excuse and we shouldn't buy it. Paul writes to a young preacher, Timothy, in 1 Timothy. He writes warnings to Timothy. And in this letter, Paul is writing to this young pastor that Paul installed in the church at Ephesus. And he's writing about problems in the church, that some people are departing from the faith and they're no longer focused on Christ, but focused on their own wants and privileges. False teachers spoke to these, what we call today, felt needs and aren't felt needs so important in our culture. And that connects with being fed. You have a felt need for something. It's something you want that you're not getting from God's word. I would suggest then that you are wanting something that is opposed to God, something that is sinful. 
Paul warns Timothy what to look out for. So again, who's warning us? It's Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, chosen by God to take the message of Christ's gospel to the nations outside of Israel. In essence, that's us, right? Unless you're of a Jewish heritage, that's you. Who's the warning intended for? It's this young pastor, like I said, named Timothy. He's been, this, he's been given this warning in order to properly guide his flock in the Christian faith. And by extension, this warning is to every disciple of Christ. We shouldn't just pass it over and say, well, that just applies to elders and pastors in the church. No, it applies to everyone. And what is the seriousness of this message? We're going to look at it as a red alert status. It's DEFCON 5. You're under attack. The church was is and will be under attack until the Lord returns. We must understand that. We can expect nothing else, but we need to be aware that the most deadly attacks will come from the inside. And as I said, we see that today. We see it in churches that are denying the sufficiency of the gospel. They're denying that God's word is inerrant. They're denying that God speaks to us today through his word. And they come up with other ways, perhaps, how God speaks through modern-day prophets, through modern-day apostles, offices in the church that were meant for a time and have passed away. Paul echoes Christ's teaching regarding a tree and its fruit that we read about in Luke chapter 6. In Timothy chapter 4, we're going to look at that. He describes those who are the bad fruit and those who are the good fruit. He gives us some ideas, some definitions, some descriptions to grasp hold of. And the first five verses deal with the bad fruit. The second five verses are going to deal with the good fruit. So 1 Timothy 4, we're going to look at 1 through 10. Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Notice it's people within the church. It's not the pagans outside. We can expect the pagans outside to be devoted to demons, but it's in the church. And this is, they do this through the insincerity of liars who consciousness are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Now you notice today how Satan is caught up with the times, and now it's not a matter of, well, if you're a believer, you need to reject these things. No, now it's a matter, if you're truly a Christian, you love your neighbor, you need to accept certain things. So the warning remains the same, right? It's something opposed to God's word. Now, what is the good fruit? Paul goes on and he, and he says in verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. He's, he's essentially given a directive that Timothy must warn his congregation of this, and thus your, your pastors and preachers today must also warn you of this, even if we are not detecting an immediate threat within our own assembly. You need to be warned of this because it is out there. It is, it is permeating the church at large. As a good servant in Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent 
silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And note well, our faith is founded on obedience. This is often missed today. Jesus issues a chilling warning to the disobedient. Again, back in Luke chapter 6, 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? If you call Jesus Lord, you should be obedient to him. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now note well who these people are that Jesus is addressing. These are people that call Jesus Lord. So they self-identify as Christians, yet Jesus says they are lost. They're focused on their own glory, not on the glory of the Father. I can think of many celebrity Christians that this pertains to. These people are bad fruit. They're wolves in sheep's clothing within the flock. What's interesting is the first church history that we have was written by this man named Eusebius. And he was from uh, Caesarea. And so he writes in the early 4th century, um, uh, at 324 AD, and he writes of what is called the Great Persecution. This is when the Roman Empire turned against the church. Rome, with all of her might, as this angry leopard beast, gnawing and gnashing and tearing with claws at Christ's church in the empire. This lasted about eight years. Eight years of murderous persecution in the early 4th century, around 303 to 311. This is what Eusebius writes about what he found in the truth in the church. He lived through the great persecution. And he said, Before the persecution of my day, the message given through Christ to the world of reverence to God was accorded honor and freedom by all men. But greater freedom brought with it arrogance and sloth. We began envying and attacking one another, making war on ourselves with weapons formed from words. Church leaders attacked church leaders, and laymen attacked laymen and formed factions against each other, while unspeakable hypocrisy and pretense reached their evil limit. Finally, while the assemblies, the churches, now mark this, finally, while the churches were still crowded, the churches aren't empty. The churches are filled with people that call themselves believers at this point. He says, at that point, divine judgment with its accustomed mercy gradually started to intervene, and the persecution began. 
persecution revealed who was the good fruit and who was the bad fruit. And Eusebius' view was the church, by its departure from obedience to God, brought on the persecution. So this parable of the fruit that Jesus tells us, it leads in Luke's gospel to the parable of the builder. The fruit from the two types of trees set their life on that which they sprang from, and we see the results in the early church. In Luke 6, 47 through 49, Jesus says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, here it is again, obedience, doing, listening, hearing the word and doing the word, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now, Matthew parallels this. And what's interesting is in Matthew's parallel, which we're not going to read, but it's essentially the same thing, he leaves out the part about digging the deep foundation. Why? Because houses in Judea did not typically have foundation. Matthew's writing to the Jews. That doesn't make, it's irrelevant to them. They're not going to, it's like talking to a Californian about a storm cellar, right? We don't have them in Southern California. Um, The the Jews in Judea did not have foundations in their their houses. Um, uh, The the Gentiles that Luke's addressing, they did. Um, So we think of the the digging of a foundation. What what Luke is saying is this is a planting, right? It's a planting. It's a setting up. We all know if the foundation of a house is not strong, if it's not built properly, that house is not going to stand. It's going to have problems. And notice also Jesus uses this flood language. He's referring back to the flood of Noah's time. That's God's judgment coming and that this foundation is necessary to withstand God's judgment. If we plant our trees, if we dig our foundation any place other than on the rock of Christ's salvation and on the tree, on the cross of his crucifixion, his salvation, we do it in vain. So we, the saints of Christ alone, have hope. Paul, writing again to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 through 7, or 1 7, he says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And this idea about a solid foundation, it brought to mind a man that I worked with that I admired greatly. He worked on the same police department I did. He was a world champion, uh, an actual world record holder in weightlifting. He was an incredibly strong man. He was the strongest man in the world. He held world records. His name was Marv. There was a famous photograph of Marv breaking the world record in powerlifting. And you could just see the grit and determination as he lifted this tremendous amount of weight, which if I recall correctly was about 1,000 pounds that he picked up off the ground. And Marv was about this high, but he was about this wide. 
Marv was focused on being world champion. There was nothing more important to him. It brought him a lot of fame. It brought him a lot of opportunities. He was invited to go to the Soviet Union back in the day when the Soviet Union was a closed nation. You could not go there unless they wanted you there. There was no tourism. He was invited there to speak to the Soviet Olympic weightlifting team. They took him to Moscow and they brought him in to the Soviet National Gymnasium. Now, the Soviet Union wanted for many things, but when it came to their sports and representation of their country, there was no money that was spared. This was a sports palace that they brought him into. It was magnificent. And he stepped in to this gymnasium, to the weightlifting platform, and he turned. And they had taken that photograph of him breaking the world record and painted a mural that covered this entire wall that was at least 20 feet high a 20-foot-high painting of Marv Phillips, United States citizen, breaking the world record. And it was there to inspire the Soviet athletes that that is the man that you must beat. Could you imagine what that would do to one's ego? It did horrible things to Marv's ego. Marv, as I said, was so focused on his career in weightlifting, that everything else was shoved aside. He ended up losing his family. He lost his wife. He lost his daughter. He had nothing but a world record that was soon forgotten. And Marv, shortly after that, came down with inoperable brain cancer. What did it matter, having a world record at that point? That something greater than a world record happened. Marv came to faith in Jesus Christ before he died. He realized that he had built his house on a foundation of sand, which the world made look oh so beautiful. But when the waves hit, that house came crashing down. But in God's grace and mercy, he found the solid rock before it was too late. And he built a house. I should say God built this house because Marv was in no condition to build anything. God built this house for Marv to take refuge in. That house is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If he is not your Lord and Savior, take heed to this message that I'm bringing to you. You don't know how much time you have. Those of you listening on the live stream, consider this. And those, my, my beloved brethren who are here and watching on the live stream, we must watch for the threats to the church. We must guard the gospel. God does not need us, but he allows us to function in this way, that we are to take care of each other. We are to make sure that no one falls to the wayside because of false teaching. Let's close with a final hymn.